questions at all. <laughs> <laughs> Yes? I'd just like to ask if you could say a bit more about guilt. You mentioned it, I think, yesterday or this morning. That's, um, as you're all probably aware of, that's a common problem. <laughs> in, uh, especially a very, it seems to be a very uh, kind of obsessive thing in the Western world. Where one is, uh, one can feel guilty about just uh, anything, about uh, what one says or eats or does or doesn't do or whatever. And this, uh, when you reflect on it, you can, like say, as a condition itself in meditation, to really uh, uh, try to. Notice the the feeling of it, just the the, the attitude of when, when you feel guilty about something, to, rather than analyzing it so much, or convincing yourself you shouldn't feel that way, or or believing it, is to really note the uh, actual mood and feeling of it. Just what does it feel like when when you're feeling guilty about something, and so you're 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 opening your, you're giving attention to, to the to the feeling of guilt, which helps you to see it's impermanent, that it's a condition rather than as a something that you should either believe in or should get rid of. Now, just uh, contemplating, you know, this is these are just my reflections on why do we feel guilty? Why are we so obsessed with this particular? problem, and uh, just noting how, let's say, Western civilization tends to be a very uh, idealistic, like say here in Britain one has, one expects a lot really, or has, <coughs> has very high standards of how things should be, uh, how one should be as a person. Uh, the standards can can be very high, and you know, we, we we can we can imagine ourselves as being you know, being a very you know as a kind of perfect what we would like to be if we could be perfect. What we feel we should be if we are normal, what we might consider normal, and then because of that we tend to not understand the limitation of our human state, so we tend to feel guilty about. The fact that we aren't, we are not uh, so, so perfect as we should be, or we can't, we can't live to the standard, the high standard that we've set. So we're always failing. You see, if you if you're very attached to high standards, then you're always going to fail because you, you uh, our human condition doesn't allow us to live on a kind of permanently permanent high standard where our life is involved with feeling and emotion where a high standard is a is a rigid concept isn't it it's it's it has it's it's not a feeling it's a, it's a it's an ideal well you recognize that 
that very much our life within the form we're in is a is experience of feeling and consciousness so that that we're having to deal with with emotions with feelings with uh, sensitivity in which we more or less react to we have strong reactions of attraction aversion so an ideal standard that uh, can be a, a kind of uh, intimidation for us where we feel you know I can't I can't be that way I'm too weak or I'm not good enough I have too many faults so then we feel guilty about about our sensitivity about our inability to be perfect or live to such a such a, a, a standard of perfection but in another way it's very good that we have high standards and because we if we tend to uh, expect uh, like we, we in our life here in uh, say here in Britain we we expect uh, people to be fair or the government to be moral or uncorrupt we, we, we want due to this high expectation uh, we we're not we're not easily overlooking the the uh, faults and flaws and weaknesses uh, so that let's say in in uh, in Thailand for example uh, their expectations aren't so high for their government so corruption and like like people complain about the prostitution in Thailand and things like this and they say how can they allow such so much of that and it's because expectations aren't as high the standard isn't as high there on the ideal level where here <coughs> we, we, uh, we we not that there isn't corruption or prostitution in Britain but it's it's not it's not uh, one doesn't one uh, thinks that it shouldn't be here and you know it, is quite critical of it and uh, would, would there be a, there's a lot of pressure to get rid of it where in say in a country that doesn't set such a high standard there's more acceptance <coughs> of those kind of things well in when you're more accepting of weakness then you're not going to feel so guilty but if you're but you can also just be very uh, uh, kind of justified. I'm, you know, that's I'm only human is a kind of uh, justification for weakness. You know that we we can say we can we can justify our weakness and inadequacies by saying I'm all, I'm only human. But we can also realize that that being human isn't doesn't necessarily imply being weak but it implies being sensitive and so we're like in meditation you're trying to bring together uh, develop the human condition with wisdom rather than just with high standards and ideals <coughs> in which you're you're going to feel a have a sense of failure and of worthlessness and guilt but it's not that you sh but we don't want to throw out high standards as being we shouldn't have them but learn how to 
to have them with wisdom rather than with ignorance. The whole, the whole key to the problem lies in, in seeing things as they are and non-attachment. Because, like in, it's humbling to accept the limitation of your human state. To accept our weaknesses doesn't mean we are justifying weakness. Like, uh, it's a relief to be able to accept one's own weaknesses, which isn't asking you uh, or or, or saying that my weaknesses are all right and that you should should like them or you shouldn't. They, sh you know, uh, you know, say that it, it people. It's none of it. There's no one else's business. But it's uh, willing to accept one's own weaknesses and limitations, and then to uh, and by accepting, then we learn how to say develop in and uh, say strengthen ourselves in areas where we are weak, not through guilt and fear, but but through wisdom and determination. I know that, like here in Britain, people have a lot of guilt, and uh, and people that are really quite good, you know, and really don't have that much to feel guilty about. <laughs> but they, you know, you think maybe they've done something really bad, and then you <coughs> find out that what they're guilty about really is not that much, but it's just a, a, an attitude of mind in which they. They're, they're comparing themselves in their daily life to a very high standard of conduct. And, uh, and of course, they, they'll never, they're never going to be that way on a permanent basis. You can't become an idol. You, you have to accept the, the, uh, the feeling of life, the flow of life, the changing process. We see Dhamma as, as this flux and flow rather than as a thing that is rigid and thick. So, so that the more you, like, just contemplate time, for example, if you... Um, we believe very much that time is a reality. I mean, we have these clocks and we have schedules and uh, you know we, we regard our age as very important our age the age of our bodies so time for us is, is is reality the real world and yet when you contemplate time you realize it's 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 only an illusion because there's only you know here and now there's no past or future as anything other than a, than something that exists in the present. Like the past is a memory that we have right now at this moment. When you think of yesterday, it's a memory, isn't it, that arises here and now. So you contemplate that, that, that memory is a condition that arises in the present. And the perception of the past is 
is that? It's it's memory, uh, and so there's no no reality in the past. The past is 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 only a memory in your mind. The future is what is uh, what we don't know, but we still have a perception of the future and the present. Like we think tomorrow is the end of this uh, summer school. That's uh, and so that is a a a perception we have about the future. There's tomorrow, isn't it? Tomorrow is the future. But that perception is here and now in the present. So, the future is is what we don't know. What will happen tomorrow? We say, well, tomorrow is the end of the Buddhist Society Summer School. We will go back home, and we 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 have. Uh, we expect or we anticipate, don't we? We can dread tomorrow something terrible might happen to us. We can worry about what the possibilities of something happening, unpleasant, unwanted tomorrow. We can hope that everything's going to be all right tomorrow. Anticipate, look forward to, plan for. But all this is happening in the present, isn't it? Like expectation, tomorrow I'm going home, is uh, is a is a mental state that I've created in the present moment. So then you're you're seeing past and future as conditions that you create in the present moment. So what's happened to time? So there's only the present moment. So you can say it's the eternal moment. Eternity is now. And that's all there is. There's, there's no, there's no past and no future. There's only now, here and now. So that's a reflection just on time, and how much of our life is based on a belief in the reality of time as something more than just perception in the mind. When, when you contemplate in this way, then more and more you, you, the past is, the memories of yourself as being somebody in the past no, no longer have the same gravity or the same power to, uh, to, uh, to make you feel guilty or to, to uh, make any problems about in the present moment. Because you, even, you know, what we've done in the past is a memory. And we're, we're looking at it as is. It's not we're trying to get away or get out of anything, but we're looking at the way it is, as it really is, rather than as we are conditioned to perceive. Like you're, you're conditioned to perceive yourself as somebody who was born and, and uh, grew up and experienced this and that, as... And that is a kind of continuous personality that was born and is, is now sitting here. That's the, that's the normal perception. That's what's considered normal thinking. So we give a lot of importance to what's happened to us in the past. And uh, the, the certain memories can spark off very strong emotions. You can remember the the injustices, the unfairnesses, the, mis the, the 
the way we were persecuted or exploited or harmed or wounded in the past. Or we can remember the terrible things we've done to others in the past. Or we can just become sentimental. When I was a young man in the good old days, the golden age, <coughs> when I was young and used to have a love life and travel and parties and pleasure and sentimentalize, but that's memory in the present. Like when, say, when we, we get middle age, then we death becomes more kind of obvious that that uh, this is, you know, one is moving toward that experience of dying. So death is, is what? You think, I'm going to die. And, and, and that can be rather a disturbing perception, the thought of our own death. Because death is, uh, what is death right now to us? Right now in this moment, what is death? It's a perception in your mind, isn't it? <clears throat> you can't remember it because it hasn't happened. So you have no memory of dying. But you do uh, have a perception that this is going to happen sometime in the future. You expect or you dread it. But you don't know what it is because you have no memory of it. And, and you, you might have various ideas about it. You might have heard various people talk and, and hear uh, stories or views and opinions about life after death or that there's nothing or that there's something <coughs> or that you'll be reincarnated or you won't be or you go to a celestial realm or a hellish one. These are various... Um, perceptions we have that we might like or prefer or believe in, but they are just that, they're perceptions of death because at this moment right now we're, we're experiencing life, life is this way life within the restriction and form of a human being is this way uh, this is the way it is, life is like this, being human is like this the death of our human body we don't know what that is. That's the unknown. That's the future and the unknown. So then you you have you have perspective on on life itself. Now when we we do that, then we we begin to uh, instead of just uh, trying to, uh, to to just be frightened of the idea of death or to feel we should find out what it's all about before it happens, or that we should believe in a certain attitude about it, or disbelieve in it, or whatever. These, these aren't really the issues anymore. They, we're just acknowledging the way it is at this moment. This is the way it is. This is Dhamma. This is the flow of Dhamma. And, and this is the way it is right now, that, that death is what we don't know the death of our physical body, we don't know what that is. Because right now the body is living, it's breathing, 
it's feeling, it's like this. Life is this way, it feels this way. And human being human is like this. The fact that we can reflect on death, on the possibility of our own death, or on the way it is, is the, the, is the perfection of our human state. Developing this. What makes human different from uh, an elephant? The nose, I guess. <laughs> elephant has bigger feet. But, <laughs> but I mean, ele elephants are intelligent. They're conscious. They feel things. Uh, elephants, they say, are very intelligent. But they they don't they they can't reflect on themselves. They they have very limited. Uh, I'm sure they have a retentive memory to a certain degree, but they they don't have a developed language like with language we. We can hold ideas. We can remember things. If you didn't have a language, you wouldn't be able to remember very much. So, so that, that being human is like this. Humans have developed language. Like English language. English is a language that... There is, you know, it's a... It's a international language these days. People are learning English everywhere because it is, uh, people want to talk to each other. We want to, uh, you know, with the modern technology, everything is, we have to communicate to each other, you know, from Tokyo to London to to uh, Ouagadougou and, and Durban and then to the Tierra del Fuego <coughs> and to the... Uh, Tahiti and so forth. There's a people want to know what's going on in all points in all parts of the planet. English is one of those languages which can. It's a, a language which uh, can take every other language into it. It's a it's a language that is very flexible and malleable. So you can you can fit all kinds of words and concepts. Uh, foreign words and that. In, in English is a mishmash, isn't it? A, it's a potpourri of, of languages already. Like an Irish stew. <laughs> <laughs> but it also gives us a tremendous ability to, to, like, to, to think, to write books, to the computers and all this are extension of human intelligence and ability to to think rationally or to reason things out. But also, that what we haven't developed in the Western world to any great extent is intuition. Our intuitive functions are not very, at least, even though they're they're present, they're not regarded as important or as being reality. We tend to look down on intuition as being something you can't depend on. If it's reasonable, rational, then we think that's proof that it's right. But intuition is about the present moment, isn't it? You, 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 it's the ability to feel and to be sensitive to the way things are.
And so when we're when we're caught up in just thinking and ideas, then we tend to to lose our intuition. We can be caught up in a world of thought and ideas. I'm telling you how you should be. You know, I can tell all of you right now what you should be. You should you should keep the five precepts and you should practice meditation every day and you should be kind to animals and you should be generous and you should feed the monks and you should <laughs> and you should you shouldn't uh, exploit or abuse anything or you should respect the planet I can tell you all that and I'm right aren't I that's the way you should be <laughs> but by telling you that I'm not I don't have to know any of you I don't have to to bother to know any of you at all I can just say that right <coughs> out and and, and uh, how you're feeling right now particular what the way it is at this time or anything else I can be totally oblivious to and yet telling you exactly how you should be see so then that's that's uh, that's say giving forth advice but it's lacking in sensitivity isn't it where intuitively one is not particularly uh, one isn't telling you how things should be but you're 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 willing to say open your heart and kind of try to feel how is it really what's really happening here what is it really like what is this person trying to say? Like sometimes people will say one thing, but they don't quite mean what they're saying. So if you take them too literally, you can get them all wrong. Like listening to people, right? You know, I used to get make mistakes all the time because I'd be hearing one thing and I and I would react, and, uh, and then I would because I would think they actually meant what they were saying. <laughs> But then I began to realize that people aren't really, sometimes they don't, they don't really mean what they're saying. They're trying to, to get, say something to you. They don't quite know how to do it so that they're <coughs> in some way kind of saying it, something else. So you, intuitively you can pick up uh, what they really mean or what's really on their mind. And that's an intuitive function of mind. It's not, or it's not being rational, is it? We can have a rational conversation, uh, you know, discussing something and and talking about uh, ideas and concepts and plans and and uh, all that. How things should be done: A, B, C, D, E, F, G, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and uh, and figure it all out on a computer and project it into the future and all that. That's the rational function of mind. So intuition we also have, and this is to this is what we're we're using more and more in meditation. You're willing, you're more and more willing to trust the your the sensitivity, the intuitive, sensitiveness of the moment. But you need to interpret it in a way that isn't personal, because a lot of the misunderstandings come from from intuition being made highly uh, represented in a very personal way 
or misunderstanding it. Like one time a woman came to Chithurst and it was a time there was a lot of problems. So she is a very kind of intuitive, sensitive woman. So she came into the reception room and there was, uh, you know, this, this kind of tense feeling, I guess. She felt this, this that, that the, the place, there was this tension in the air. So she, she got up and left. And several years later, uh, I asked, I said, well, we haven't seen you around for a while. She, she said, well, you know, I felt that, I just felt your community was just a very tense one. And then uh, she explained what had happened. And, of course, you know, no doubt she did come at that time as there was certain moments where any community goes through difficult patches. But she, she tended to interpret it as a kind of permanent problem rather than maybe just at the time she happened to be there, that's the way it is. So we, we, can, we can form a bias and a prejudice, can't we, just by interpreting a, a sense we have for something and, and making it as if this is the, the way it really is all the time. We do that with each other, don't we? We, we, we tend to uh, look at each other as, as if, because I, I know your name, that I really know you. Or that I have memories of you as being a, or saying or acting in a certain way. And so that is what you are. So one tends to uh, say, hold people in, we create each other in our minds. Colin is like this, and Neville is like that, Jacquette is this way, and Daryl that way, and, and we think we know, we know them because we have memories of them. So, this is, when you contemplate it, you see that, that that's just a, a, a perception you have, that's not a person. What you think somebody is, is a thought in your mind. It's not a person. That's not what anything, anyone really is on a permanent basis. And yet we can believe that we actually know somebody because we have a lot of views about them that we're attached to. So, so this we, we begin to let go of, the tendency to create people in our mind. Because if, if I always see you from a from a perception that I have of you, then that tends to block any my intuitive mind, isn't it? If I've already feel I know you, I, I know what you are, then I'm always seeing you from from my perception of you rather than from a direct intuitive openness to the way you are right now. So they if, if I happen to meet you say years ago where you were in going through a difficult time and you uh, were very depressed and negative about everything, left me with a bad impression. So then several years later somebody says, whatever happened to Mary Lou? And uh, oh, that Mary Lou, what a pain in the neck. Really, you know, difficult woman, depressed, really unpleasant to be around. So then, you know, that's five years later, I'm still thinking of Mary Lou as 
from from uh, from a memory. You know, that's what. So when everybody says Mary Lily, she's this way. So then I hear Mary Lou's coming for a visit. So, so, uh, oh no, a dreadful woman. <laughs> <laughs> So they bring in Mary Lou and I, and I think, here she is, and I, I how do you do? So I see you again. Walk away, because I've, I've already kind of set up, you know, I've already uh, made my, my decision that she's a certain type or a certain way. So there's no, there's no openness to, to the way she is in the present. And that is, that is, uh, what we do, isn't it? How we, we tend to react in, in social situations. But as we trust more in uh, refuges in Dhamma and in mindfulness, then we're, we're, we're always willing to, to allow the moment to be as it is, in which we're not projecting, we're not creating each other in, as, as this or that, or shoulds or shouldn't. So then, then the true nature of our sensitivity, our reflective mind, our humanity is at, is at its uh, peak, at its best. Um, um, how, what is the best way of dealing with very powerful uh, things like um, like anger or sexual desire, very powerful things which can sort of take over from time to time. Like those are the uh, <coughs> great passions of the mind, and uh, like sexual desire is an uh, instinctual thing, and because we we have language and memory, we can we can fantasize. So we can, we can create sexual desire through fantasy. Or say the animal kingdom uh, does it through in, much more just instinctual, seasonal uh, uh, experiences of, for procreative purposes, but not for, uh, for just pleasure alone or, or fantasy life. So what we can do, say like a, in uh, celibacy, of course, you... you uh, you, you, you're refraining from acting on sexual impulses so that the, uh, one can refrain from fantasizing and you have to refrain from fantasizing from creating sexual or being interested following interest in that direction but one also has to recognize that that is a very powerful attractive force uh, and it's, uh, it's a natural function it's uh, it's uh, it's it's a part of n- uh, nature. It's the nature of our bodies. To their sexual bodies, and so that this is just the way it is. But say in in a in a uh, moral commitment to where we're not just we're not just following uh, sexual impulses. Uh, we we determine to say say remain celibate where say as monks we our determination is is for celibacy in which we can uh, 
recognize this force but not act on it. We choose not to act on, on sexual impulses. So this also gives us tremendous uh, power in our practice because you're, you're developing that, that kind of energy and raising it up higher in, in your body to where you're actually, say, developing a much more powerful concentration with the mind. Uh, because, say, someone who just lives a very promiscuous sexual life uh, usually uh, dissipates all their energies through sexual activity because it's, it's very, uh, uh, you know, one gets very weak and, and debilitated just through, through uh, promiscuous behavior because your energy is just being released on, a, on, a, on the uh, instinctual level. And, and so that the idea of the spiritual development oftentimes connects to celibacy uh, uh, because of the power that you get from using that energy much more for, say, samadhi or um, spiritual goals. Like you can actually feel as you draw energy up from 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 the lower from the lower place, like the the genital area and the lower part of your body is 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 a very is a, is a powerhouse. It's all the heat and digestive organs uh, and sexual uh, functions are in the, in that part, and so it's a very powerful part of your your body. So the the say the aim of samadhi is to raise that energy, uh, bring it into the into the heart area, <coughs> so that your you you uh, you feel this sense of, of fullness of the body, and and where the body maintains itself, like when there's uh, right concentration, then the, the, there's a sense of fullness and and balance in the posture, like in sitting. Um, so that your the 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 energy, say from the lower part of your body, is being being trans transmuted from just into procreate from procreative activities towards spiritual uh, development so in, but re- remember that in our society uh, we tend to idealize sexuality or we tend to regard it as dirty or bad we tend to we tend to to look at it in two ways. Either we exalt it as something that is almost an end in itself, the only thing worth living for, or as something very bad and dirty. And uh, we, we don't understand it as, as something to learn from, something to, to, un, to uh, develop, say, the, the power and the energy in the body of how to develop that in any other way than through suppressing it or through indulging in it. But there is a, a, a more skillful way of dealing with it. Then with, with anger, the, uh, uh, this, is, uh, this is a natural tendency too. I mean, to somebody, you know, one, uh, it's a, necessary for self-preservation, isn't it? 
to uh, you know something bad, something painful, something unpleasant to be averse. Uh, we can feel because we're idealistic, we can also feel tremendous indignation at injustice or unfairness. Not just a- anger at somebody insulting me, but I can, I can feel even more angry at, at seeing some, something unfair happen or some injustice. I can feel very righteous and indignant about what people are doing to innocent members of the society. So this 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 is a very power this is a very strong passion, but it also blinds us when we when we indulge in anger or when we suppress it. So because it is very powerful emotion, uh, we need to to understand it and to uh, to be patient. Like anger always implies a lack of patience. It's it's wanting. Uh, wanting to get rid of something now, not in, in where you know, just really uh, wanting to annihilate or destroy, get even, take revenge. So anger, for us, needs to be. We need to develop tremendous patience, endurance, uh, wisdom, in order to say when we do feel indignant, not to. To just act in a in an indignant energy, but being patient, then we can we can wait until it's appropriate time. Till, I mean, till the, we have the intuition of when to act or when to do something, rather than to just strike out impulsively at something that we we are angry, someone that we're angry with. And so, these are these like greed, lust sexual desire, anger, aversion, these are the, the strong passions we feel uh, within this state, and they are to be understood rather than to be suppressed or to be indulged in. Then what happens in meditation when people I don't feel any greed or any any lust or any anger, is then they get very dull. So sometimes you see, like in 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 Amaravati, you get some newly uh, some new uh, people coming for meditation. They're very inspired, and they're uh, and so they 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 have inspiration. To be inspiration gives you energy. So you're really inspired. This is Buddhism's wonderful. So inspiring. And then you look at some of the uh, monks that have been there, monks and nuns that have been there for a while, and they're, and, they're, and the, the new people are sitting like this, full of inspiration, and some of the monks or nuns are like this. <laughs> and so then, then uh, the new people think, look at that, I'm not going to be like that. And, uh, you know, they look, don't look very good because they're kind of, kind of, they didn't, they feel bored and they're and they're uh, sleepy and dull. Then there's others that that uh, I mean you can you can also generate energy through greed uh, and and anger. But because we're celibate, we we in a monastic uh, community, you 
is to be careful on the on the fantasy side of life. But uh, anger, you can you uh, you can use anger to keep awake. So you see some people, you know, always somehow they're always finding something to feel angry about, and so then they're they can sit very well while they're angry. <laughs> I remember one monk used to he used to uh, I used to wonder why he was always angry with somebody. Oh, every day he finds something wrong with somebody. Is either this monk or this nun, and and uh, and then and when he was in the meditation hall, he'd be sitting very straight, and uh, you realize that he was angry. When he wasn't angry, he couldn't he couldn't stay awake; he'd just fall asleep. <laughs> so this is what we we use, isn't it? Uh, like for stimulating our minds, inspiration, one thing be inspired we need we, we we're expecting something to inspire me to excite me uh, sex is very exciting to the mind sexual fantasy sexual ideas that excites and stimulate the mind anger excites and stimulates the mind so so this we're, we're expecting this this excitement and stimulation from external sources so there's still something undeveloped in that mind. It's still you're you're not developing from inside yet. You're you're expecting things to to happen to you to keep you awake. So when that's not happening anymore, you you're no longer inspired. You're not in a state of of sexual excitement. You're not angry. Then what do you do? You, you go into sloth torpor. You go. So people just uh, then they 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 try to get rid of this this torpor state. So they they use willpower. Then, well, you know, uh, I don't want to be like that. I want when I mean, you're sitting in a meditation hall and, and you're falling over and pe people are looking at you, giving you dirty looks, and you know they they're looking down on you. You you can't sit straight. You can't stay awake. No, there's this oftentimes vanity it keeps you keeps you going to look good in front of the group. <laughs> <laughs> you don't make a fool of yourself. Uh, but that uh, works for so long, and then it doesn't. You can't hold that up. And so, just the the dull dullness, mental dullness, takes over. Uh, and and then the resistance to it. So this this is that this is actually a sign that, that you you have to work on a more subtle level than before, and it means that you're you have to generate more energy, not just will not willpower from desire, but but through mindfulness. You're 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 developing that kind of reflectiveness on the very dull state you're in, rather than just resisting and fighting against it. You're Examining it, you're using your mind to to look and notice the feeling of dullness, and you're you're accepting the dull state rather than resisting it. The sleepy dullness, you're you're accepting it, you're understanding it, standing under it, you're examining it. That that will that attitude will allow 
that particular problem to cease. Then there's uh, restlessness agitation, uh, where one just feels, uh, it's the opposite of sloth torpor, where you just feel physically uh, restless and mentally agitated. And that, that also applies, rather than just suppressing it with willpower, you have to examine and investigate and be patient. <coughs> be very, very patient with the feelings of just feeling agitated or irritated by things. And then doubt, the, uh, the uncertainty and doubt of the mind is even more subtle. Because doubt is that, that tendency to doubt to, to, uh, is, is, uh, needs to be noticed rather than just suppressed or to be attached to. So when, you're, when your mind goes into doubt and uncertainty that if you really look at doubt and accept it, then you'll begin to recognize emptiness of the mind. Where the, because doubting is, 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 the, is a kind of door to emptiness. Where, say, the, the desire mind is always to, to solve the doubt with another, with another thing, to have an answer to have somebody from outside or some word or some idea uh, to attach to. So in, in examining the, the, the doubting nature of your mind, then more and more you're accepting the, the unknown, the insecurity. So there's a, there's a, you're developing from within you a, a, an unshakability of strength within you rather than, than expecting external sources to come and inspire you or stimulate you or keep you awake. These are from, say, the, the unawakened, unenlightened human being depends on stimulating to keep, feel alive and be somebody. You have to have a kind of continuous thing going on, you know. You're going from this to that, busy, working, doing this, doing that, and then and finding interesting things, things that entertain, interest, excite, stimulate, fascinate you. And then when you can't do it, you feel bored, you go crash out, sleep, sleep, you get up, and then you go from this to that, another interesting thing, another sensory experience, another excitement, another fascination, uh, and just going around and around, uh, going from inspiration to inspiration, or romance to romance. Like romance is what? That's the arising, you know, it's an inspired state. You know, it's, it's, uh, romance is, is pleasurable, it's exciting. And so, some people like romance, but they don't like what happens after romance isn't there. Because <laughs> it's boring. You know, once, once the romance is gone, it gets pretty boring. And so romance is exciting. So then you see people who just go from one romance to another. As soon as it, it kind of gets boring, they split and then go find someone else to have romance with. Oh, that's an inspiration or excitement. It's like that. So that is, means that you never grow up. You're always just kind of stuck in the state of needing to be entertained by somebody, to be 
to be excited or inspired by things outside yourself. So in, in uh, spiritual life, you're developing this strength where you're, you're not dependent upon inspiration. Like, if, like I found Buddhism very inspiring at first. When I first became a Buddhist, I could read Buddhist books and just become, you know, I, I, I was in the Navy then, in San Francisco. I used to go out to Golden Gate Park and read Buddhist books and just get high as a kite. Sitting out there under the trees, I was happy. And go back to the ship and I just feel so inspired. And anybody thought I, I was, you know, had been enjoying other pleasures. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very odd thing to be a Buddhist in those days, especially in the American military. <laughs> I wasn't about to tell anyone. But the, uh, then, after a while, I, I became absolutely bored with Buddhism. I couldn't read anything Buddhist. A book on Buddhism was a sure thing to put me to sleep, and uh, I just uh, I I couldn't in Buddhism could no longer inspire me. But then by that time I was practicing, and uh, I didn't need to be inspired anymore. I didn't I outgrew that inspiration, so I didn't I didn't look to I didn't look to any teacher or anybody or any. Any, anything to inspire me, but I realized the practice had to come through, through, uh, through uh, mindfulness and, uh, and a kind of continuous, more kind of constant effort in mindfulness. Uh, so, and that, that's a very kind of dreariness and boredom and disillusionment was part of the practice, that one had to bear with that side. You know, with the kind of boredom uh, and the disillusionment one felt towards it all, and uh, so that that was a very strengthening experience because once once you got through that, there was a, a balance, more of a balanced attitude, where you began to feel tremendous respect and love for for the Buddha and that, but it was coming from from here rather than from up here. It was heartfelt. It was it was based on gratitude and and wise reflection and and uh, appreciation and respect rather than on the intellectual inspiration. So that's that's like a, a an actual process from <coughs> inspiration to disillusionment to right understanding. And that applies almost anything, right? whatever you do, whether it's a worldly thing, um, marriage, or work, or whatever. Is there's a that's that's the way it tends to to go. To and, and it's only those who kind of bear with the process that actually learn and gain wisdom from it. But if people people tend to like in um, as soon as the kind of magic is gone or the inspiration isn't there to try to seek it in something something else someone else 
which means that you never grow up. <laughs> You're always going to talk at an immature level. Because the real effort is, real energy comes from in here. You don't, you don't need to, to get it from, you don't need to be, you know, you no longer does one really want to be stimulated from external things. Like I find, I'm not really attracted anymore, wanting to be excited by external things. The idea of going to a pleasure park and and um, and or going to a, a a disco or or some kind of or a football game or anything like this doesn't interest me. I'd rather go back to my room and just sit there. Because I don't, I don't find that, that that I I I really want to be excited by it and want that kind of st- stimulation. If it happens, I can bear it. It's not that I'm frightened of it or averse to it. But I don't. I wouldn't seek it out. I wouldn't incline. You know, feel I need to go and be a, go to a show or have some something exciting happen to me, because one appreciates just the silence and peace of, of, the, of being alive and here and now, that's enough because you're no longer dependent on you're no longer just going dull when you're not being stimulated your mind isn't dull, the true nature of your mind isn't dull isn't uh, that way, it, it, the true nature of mind is pure and bright, intelligent. So one time somebody said, do monks ever have holidays? And I said, yes, yes we do. Where do you go? Said, well, we go on meditation retreat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from, from California, where and my family all lived in Southern California, not far from Disneyland. And I've never been to Disneyland, ever. I'm proud to say. <laughs> I'm people wanted to take me there, but I've never, uh, as, a, as a monk, but I, you know, that, but somehow I've never really felt any interest in going there. You know, just to be kind of stimulated and amused by all this stuff, it doesn't really appeal to me. It doesn't doesn't uh, sound like anything that I I would uh, want to participate in. Not there's anything wrong with it. You know, it's all right, but but there's not there's not any interest in it. Well, I can like if I stay with my sister. I, she can put me in a, in a room in her house. I can just sit there very peacefully. Feel quite happy, and she'll say, "Oh well, we have to, you know, what would you like to do this afternoon? Where can we take you?" And, what? <laughs> and so usually I give in just to, because to make my sister happy, because uh, she feels, you know, well, it, you know, she feel that she wasn't taking proper care of me if she wasn't trying to entertain me take me places. So, and yet, actually, I, I wouldn't, uh, <coughs> I'm quite happy to be where I am. 